Hello, it's Roz Taylor. We hope you're enjoying the podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the best way to keep the bunker going is to back us on Patreon. You get early ad-free episodes, merchandise and much more too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. My guest today was Head of News and Current Affairs at Channel 4 for many years. Now she's President of Murray Edwards College in Cambridge. Dorothy Byrne, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much for inviting me to be in your bunker. Your college, Murray Edwards, is one of only two colleges in Britain, I think, that still admit only women. Is there any pressure you feel to go co-ed sometimes? We're a women's college for historical reasons, because in the past, women couldn't go to the other colleges. But actually, there are many absolutely contemporary, very strong arguments for having a college for women. We know that in secondary education, women do better if they are at all-girls schools. What's great at Cambridge is that you go out and have all your lectures and your work in the laboratory in a mixed gender environment. You have your terrific social life, but you do your smaller supervisions here in college with other women and you live in this absolutely beautiful college with the biggest collection of women's art in Europe. That's really fabulous gardens. It's a bit of an oasis. But in terms of learning, the students say, because these supervisions are just two students, that doing your supervision, especially in the early years of your time here with another woman, is a really positive experience. Another woman lets you speak She doesn't talk over you. She listens to you. If you have a difficult problem, you work together on it to solve it. In some subjects across the UK, women are very much in the minority. And women at all universities say it it can be very difficult. Nationally, only about 23% of Engineering students are women. In computer science, it's 15%. So what students say to me is when you're in a very small minority in the rest of your teaching, it's just really good to to come back here and have that small group teaching with another woman. You said that life for girls or young women is worse than it was 50 years ago. And some people would find that surprising, given that abuse that was tolerated, encouraged even, 50 years ago, is pretty much outlawed now, not tolerated. So what has got worse? Well, I actually said it's in many ways got worse, because I think, you know, I was at university 50 years ago. Obviously, many things have got better. I mean, particularly contraception only became available for a single woman in 1969. And abortion was very, very difficult to get. And those are basic rights. And basic rights at work have massively increased. 
But I think that there's a difference between having legal rights and having a good and happy life. And when it comes to a good and happy life, we see a reversal of the situation. Very high levels of girls with eating disorders and extraordinary levels of uh, anxiety. One of the most shocking figures is that everyone's invited. The campaigning group found that 60% of girls and young women had been harassed or assaulted in their place of education, not while they were at school or university, but actually in those places. And the level of anxiety, stress and depression among young women is frightening and it's just going up and up and up. I wanted to ask you about the disappearance and the coverage of it of Nicola Bully a few weeks ago, who of course disappeared from a riverside in Lancashire. And the way that the media covered that was criticised by Ofcom and criticised by Nicola Bully's family. Have we got something to learn from this case? Because it speaks a lot, doesn't it, to the way women are perceived um, and uh, are discussed in, in the media. Can we learn something from this? Well, I think the first thing we can learn is that I would question very strongly the information that the police released, the alleged information that the police released about Nicola Bully. I don't know if it's true because Nicola Bully is dead. God knows how she would feel if she had known that that sort of information was being purveyed about her. ITV and Sky went against a direct request by the family not to be bothered by the media after Nicola Bully's body was found, and they should not have done that. They are currently being investigated by Ofcom, and I would be amazed if Ofcom did not find against them, because that is a breach of the regulations which uh, govern broadcasters. I was astonished that they did that. Channel 4 didn't do it. The BBC didn't do it. It's wrong. The reason that we have very highly trusted television news in this country is because it is very strongly regulated. So people know you can trust it. And I think that was a breach of trust to the viewer as well as to her family and to her memory. They should not have done that. As you pointed out, it was it was the police who mentioned that she had alcohol problems and said that those were linked to the menopause. Whether that's true or not, of course, as you say, we don't we don't know. One of the things that's really changed for women recently is the willingness to talk about menopause and for women themselves to be open about the fact they're experiencing symptoms of it, which until quite recently was really not the case at all. You covered this at Channel 4, didn't you? When I gave the main lecture at the Edinburgh TV Festival, which would only be about three years ago now, I said many things and some of them radical, but the one that, other than saying Boris Johnson was a known liar, that got the most 
coverage was the fact that I talked about my problems with the menopause. And then after that, I commissioned a film. It was the last film I commissioned at Channel 4 by Davina McCall, presented by her, about the menopause. And among the many things that we discovered was that many women were erroneously being told by their GPs that you just had to put up with the menopause. So why bother complaining about it or thinking about it because you just have to live with it? That's rubbish. There are many treatments for the menopause. Women were being told that HRT was dangerous, they shouldn't take it, or told that they were not suited to it, they were too old for it, it wouldn't do anything. All those statements are untrue for almost all women. The response to the Channel 4 programme on the menopause was transformational. An enormous increase in the percentage of women demanding HRT from their doctors. And in fact, what happened was that Britain actually ran out of HRT And I couldn't get my own HRT. And I thought, who is to blame for the fact that I cannot get my HRT? And then I realised it was me because I had told women about HRT. A lot of GPs admitted that they had had 30 minutes training in their medical training about the menopause, something that's going to affect directly half of their patients and indirectly the menopause affects families, friends, employers, fellow employees. So it it was extraordinary how little training GPs had. And in that first film that we made, Channel 4 is in the middle of making a third film about the menopause. The other thing that we discovered was that many GPs themselves admitted that they didn't know enough about the menopause and about HRT. You spent many years at Channel 4 and it's recently seems to have escaped from the threat of privatisation that was being held over it by the government. What do you think Channel 4 is going to look like in a decade's time? I don't think with broadcasting when it's changing so quickly, we can predict what it will look like. But I can say some of the things I hope it will still have. I think that it will still be absolutely key, in particular, that the BBC and Channel 4 have really strong news, which is properly provided for financially. And that will be essential for our democracy to maintain trustworthy news on television and on other platforms. Almost certainly, as time goes on, people will watch and listen to that news on other platforms. That's absolutely fine. Channel 4 will move increasingly to finding other sources of income other than television advertising. But I think that's the most important thing. And I do think it's important 
to maintain both the BBC and Channel 4 as public service broadcasters because they're giving alternative and varied views of what news is to the public. I wouldn't be happy if there was just one public service broadcaster, although I think the news on Channel 5, ITV and Sky is also very good. They are commercial organisations, so ultimately they might find that they have a commercial reason to reduce the amount of news in prime time or reduce the money they spend. And that's why we need public service broadcasters, because we, the public, can require that they spend significant sums of money on news. It is a real challenge, isn't it, to ensure that people do have access to public service broadcasting because so many people don't watch TV or listen to radio in what we used to think of as prime time. When your main platform is, say, TikTok, you know, the Chinese government has no interest in, which owns TikTok, has no interest in ensuring that Britons can have access to good quality news. Do you see a way to try to overcome these these problems where people are migrating to platforms which have no interest in trustworthy news? First of all, what you have to do is to take your news out to where people are consuming it. And that will take different forms. So news on YouTube, news on all different platforms. But if you look at the actual statistics, you see that the most uh, relies upon source of news is still television news. Even although people might actually imbibe that news by looking at the BBC website, for example, instead of looking at television, it's still the biggest source of news and it's still the most trusted source of news among all groups, even young people. You often hear people say, people don't trust television news anymore. That's literally untrue. That The people who say that are the people who want you to believe they're more trustworthy. It's one of the big lies because they do trust it. And you will know that yourself because in the pandemic, when you want to know the truth, did you turn to TikTok produced by the Chinese government, of course, or uh, controlled by? I don't think that's where you went to get your key information. And in emergencies, we know that people turn to television news on all different platforms and in particular to the BBC, but also to the other major broadcasters. And as life generally becomes less trustworthy, I think that the USP of public service television organisations, which is we are regulated, trustworthy and truthful, actually becomes stronger and stronger. I think if you look at research which the regulator has done about the extent to which young people trust social media news, it's low. They know that what they're seeing is 
almost certainly not true or may well not be true. But I do think that there's a particular group or groups in society who are susceptible to uh, falsified news. And that has really grown. And I don't know how we combat it. And I don't think as a society we have thought sufficiently how to combat it. For example, people who believe that there's no such thing as COVID or it was caused by the government or that vaccines are going to render you infertile, just telling them that that's rubbish doesn't seem to have an effect. And I think we need to study much more how to help people who are frankly deluded because there are more and more of them because of social media. Dorothy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters contributing editor Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>